continuing with our summer sermon series on the book of James. I, someone recent, one of my friends recently made a joke about young seminarians and said every young seminarian comes out of seminary thinking that the book of James is the be-all, end-all, and that's the only thing that's needed, and the rest of the Bible isn't needed. And I thought, boy, I'm recently at a seminary and a young pastor, and I'm preaching a sermon series on James. I don't know what to do with that, but we're going to push through anyway. James is all about making faith real. It's all about uh, telling people and, and admonishing people and encouraging people that you cannot simply have an intellectual faith. Faith must be lived out. And many people have talked to me so far in this series about how relevant the themes of this book are to our times. I don't know if that's recency bias or if it's just always relevant, but it sure feels like we're living in a time very similar to the one that James speaks of, intense social conflict. I've titled this particular part of the series, Wisdom and Peace, and it's my play, it's my play on words for that seminal book, War and Peace. And if you've ever tried to read War and Peace, you know that is an impossible task. That thing should be used for firewood only because it is it's massive. So I hope that the play on words will not be an indication of how long the sermon will be. But I've titled it War, uh, Wisdom and Peace, excuse me, Wisdom and Peace, because James makes clear in these few chapters where we are, James chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, we'll read them in a moment, but he makes clear in just a few verses that wisdom and peace are inextricable. One cannot exist without the other, or so James says. Two weeks ago, I talked to a Latin legal term that I'm very fond of. Does anybody remember it? This is discouraging. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. After it, therefore, because of it. In life, what one thing following another does not mean it was caused by the first thing, but that's how we tend to think. Correlation is not equal causation. James, on the other hand, seems to love post hoc ergo propter hoc. He builds, like a lawyer, argument upon argument. And he, in multiple places, as we've discussed, and apparently not well enough, because none of you remember, but he builds things and he says, if this exists, then this must happen too. He does it with word and deed. He says, if you truly believe, then actions will follow. After it, therefore, because of it. He does the same here with wisdom and peace. If true wisdom exists, then peace will always be byproduct. It will always happen in tandem. I've recently been watching Ken Burns' amazing documentary series on the American Civil War, and so it's very front of mind for me when we talk about conflict. It's the first thing that comes to my head. After Lincoln and the Union won the war, there was a lot of celebrating. But Lincoln actually said it was the, most, it was the saddest he had been in his entire term as president. And it was because he knew that while the cause was just, while he knew that what they were working for was important, 750,000 lives had just been lost in the process. And he felt like a failure for not finding a way to do it without bloodshed. He felt like there was nothing to celebrate, nothing to be proud of in this, even though he felt like it was worth it. He stepped back and saw a broader view. But as we'll come to see, I think that Lincoln was actually on to something. We're called to do the same thing, step back, take a, grasp a higher view, to, to see the whole picture. And I don't want to overstate things, 
but I think we're living in very polarizing times. COVID has certainly not been helpful in this regard, but COVID is just one instance. It only exposed what was already simmering underneath the surface. We've become very subsurface level tribal people. The real comparison is how much people define themselves by us versus them. We may not use that language, but that's really what it boils down to often. And today, I believe God is calling us to step back, to grasp this higher view. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 3, we'll be spending our time only on five verses, verses 13 to 18. I'll be reading from the NLT. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. We're going to go through the whole thing a little bit, but we're going to focus mostly today on what I think is the key verse, verse 17. Verse 17 is basically the crux of the entire argument James is making. We live in an era, in an age of unlimited knowledge. There is no need, so some would say, to learn anything anymore. The entire catalog of human knowledge is available at the push of a button from anywhere in the world now, thanks to the internet. Wisdom and knowledge are constantly conflated for one another. But if wisdom and knowledge were the same thing, and in an era where the entirety of human knowledge is available to push of a button, we would all make great decisions all the time. And I can personally attest to how one can make bad decisions, particularly on the internet. Knowledge is not lacking. In fact, knowledge seemingly would be overwhelming and paralyzing. We have so much knowledge, we don't know what to do with it. What we lack is wisdom. James describes to us the so-called wisdom of the world, and it is not pretty. Human history reveals how powerfully we are driven by envy and selfish ambition, and the result is predictably disorder and the evil that we see in the world. Putting ourselves ahead of other people means creating billions of self-centered, independent, and often competing goals. A willingness to use and hurt other people in order to get what we want. Again, we're dealing with James here. This isn't abstract. James is talking about very specific things, very real things. So James begins by describing this worldly wisdom, and then he says, but there is a higher column. Take a step back. James says, wherever there is envy or selfish ambition, you will always find disorder. That's how the Amplified translation of the Bible refers to that verse. 
They, they expand it and say confusion, unrest, disharmony, rebellion, evil of every kind. That's what you get when you try and use earthly wisdom. If we follow the way of envy and selfish ambition, we may think that we're wise, but it's not true wisdom. Because James is also very clear. Wisdom only comes from one place. True wisdom comes from above. It comes from an unchanging God who has access to all of the information that we think we are constantly accessing and doing good with. And James concludes, we're going to jump to the end, James concludes this part, this passage, in verse 18. He says, And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So he begins by talking about wisdom, and he ends by talking about peace. Again, post hoc ergo propter hoc. After it, therefore, because of it. In this case, very true. True wisdom is that which seeks to sow peace. That will, that, the things, the, the, the ideas and the actions that will bring about the peace that God speaks of, that Jesus speaks of, that will then lead to righteousness, to the good that God seeks for his creation. This call to bring peace is rooted in the entirety of the Bible and in the very personhood of Jesus. He entered the world in which his own people, the Jewish people, had formed various litmus tests or that defined good and evil, us versus them. And they would have welcomed the Messiah to come on their side, help us vanquish evil. We've defined good. This is easy. Wisdom. But Jesus, of course, shows up, and he doesn't see it that way. He shows up and says that this is the way, and it's not the way they've defined it. He saw a world divided not by those who were good and those who were evil, but those who lacked true peace with God and those who didn't. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Again, we're working backwards here. Bear with me. Righteousness because of peace, thanks to wisdom. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. One cannot be a child of God without at least attempting, without at least trying to sow peace. He tells us that those who seek peace are the ones who are his children. Those who bring peace are those who reflect God's image to the world. In a time of conflict, in this polarized time, what could be a more relevant message? Now sometimes I get accused, and rightfully, of being a little overly romantic about these kinds of things. James is very practical, he's very down to earth. And I talk in large abstract concepts, and it can seem naive. It seemed pie in the sky. We'll never get there. Idealistic. Good. Overreach is good. Trying too hard is good. Reaching for something you know you won't get to is good. The entirety of the Bible is filled with people doing exactly that. And this is the most important part to understand about peacemaking. Peacemaking is not a passive experience. 
Too often, we mistake silence or the absence of conflict for peace. True peace is active. The absence of conflict often actually means there is less peace. Scriptures tell us this in Romans 14, 19. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort. It doesn't come to you. Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Active. Peacemaking. This isn't about getting along. Peacemaking is an active thing. It doesn't just avoid conflicts that exist. In fact, it means entering conflict on purpose to sow peace, to bring healing, to promote justice. As James says, we are peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacekeeping is only one part of being a peacemaker. So, let's shift our focus to verse 17, in which James identifies the qualities that will sow peace. We're going to quickly take a look at the different qualities that he, that he mentions. If you're going to be a peacemaker in your home, at work, in your family, in your community, you're going to have to learn how to plant these things in a way that you can relate. They reflect the wisdom and therefore the way of God. And they are as follows. First thing, we're truly wise, we don't compromise goodness and truth. Real wisdom is first of all pure, James tells us. If I'm wise, I will not compromise truth. Truth matters. Truth is not subjective. If, we're paying, if you were paying attention last week, then you already know what I'm about to say here in this part. What truth are we talking about? If you were paying attention last week, I mentioned the power of words. Words matter. The world can change or not by changing a few words. James makes clear that words matter. I've spoken many times about my frustration with Bible translations entering headings, and even sometimes chapters and verses into the writings, because sometimes it makes us think of them as separate and not related, but James is building his argument like a lawyer, and he has just finished talking about the power of words. And then he comes and says, wisdom and peace. See, in order to build a relationship with someone, you need trust. In order to have trust, you need to have truth. Honesty is the bedrock of all good relationships. It's truthful. It's honest, it's real, it has integrity. If you want to sow peace, you're going to have to make sure that you are speaking truth. Truth that values other individuals, and we'll get to that more in a minute. But I believe that this is particularly tested in our current overly politi uh, political and certainly polarizing times. We see others as part of a war to win. We justify spinning the truth if we can just get them to agree with us. That's certainly true in politics. We use biased facts and leave other things out because we're trying to win rather than speak truth. And James says that that is not a position from God. If I'm truly wise, I will not compromise on goodness and truth. 
And then the second thing he says, for truly wise will seek to form connection rather than conflict. Again, building like a lawyer, truth becomes the bedrock of relationship. Relationship is incredibly important. Connection, real wisdom is peaceful. Have you ever headed into a situation where you know that the other person is just seeking, like looking for a fight? If you're married, you don't need to answer that question. <laughs> I can only make that joke because my wife's not here. <laughs> the truth is, when we feel hurt, we get angry. We often want to punish. We try and wrap it up and say that it is justice, when in reality it's vengeance. Justice and vengeance are, not only are they not synonymous, often they're at odds with each other. But we do this in our relationships, right? You did this, so I'm going to do this. But if we're truly people of wisdom, truly peacemakers, then that is not helpful. The simple truth is that when people don't feel safe, when they know that you're more critical than caring, then we are not sowing the peace of God. Kyla and I talked about this early in my tenure here when we were discussing children's ministry. The famous quote by Maya Angelou comes to mind here. People will forget, particularly children, will forget what you've taught them. They won't forget the way you've made them feel. And that is so incredibly important in church. I, I make jokes about you all forgetting post hoc ergo proctor hoc. But I care far more about the way I make you all feel. And so for some of us, this can be really, really significant. Some of us tend to be more critical in our thinking. Some of us tend to be proud of being right more than we're proud of being kind. Some of us think that people need our correcting, that we're God's gift to misguided lives. And once again, I'm preaching to myself here. If my wife were here, she would tell you this. If my sisters were here, they would tell you this. I really struggle with this. I have an affinity for telling people what they are doing wrong with their lives, and then I'm shocked when they're offended instead of thanking me. I'm trying to help you. No, it's not how that works. If we don't understand that people matter more than being right, we will never get it right. We can win arguments and lose people, but that is backwards. And this is true in the church context, individually as well as corporately. I can't tell you how many churches I have seen, some of them close their doors, some of them go through very difficult times because they started valuing programs above people. People matter more. Connection matters more. Yes, we have to have good doctrine. Yes, we have to do everything we can to get it right, but not at the expense of people. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, Any fool can start arguments. The honorable thing to do is stay out of them. It doesn't mean that we avoid engaging in disagreement. It doesn't mean that we don't engage and work back and forth. Being peaceful means we've entered conflict intentionally, but that people matter more. And that above all, everyone knows that they are valued and loved. The third thing James says, is that real wisdom is full of mercy. Now, other translations, depending on what your Bible is, will have this as considerate or courteous 
Some of them have us gentle with people. Consider it means that we're taking into account what the other person feels. Again, you can see James building his argument, right? He says, people matter more. How do we do that? Here's how. We consider their feelings. We consider where they're coming from. One of the greatest challenges we face as human beings is breaking out of our own orbits and considering what other people are feeling and going through. If someone has feelings and fear that they're different from others, we tend to think they're wrong. We tend to downplay them as people. We consider them, they're, they're, because they might have something we consider, uh, a thought that we consider invalid or illogical, we consider them as invalid or illogical. That's not the same thing. People matter more. Rick Warren described it this way. He said, one of the reasons so many marriages end in disaster and so many kids are estranged from parents and so many citizens are fractured in angry divisions is because people have never been taught how to sit with someone's pain without getting defensive about it. How to sit with someone's pain without getting defensive about it. And it causes all kinds of problems. When somebody tries to express how fearful or heartbroken or angry they are about some deep, painful wound, the most unloving thing, the most unhelpful phrase in the English language is, yes, but what about? How many times do we do this? This is not a contest. We cannot police other people's feelings. Yes, but what about? Yes, you're struggling, but what about so-and-so? That is invalidating. It assumes that someone, that what they feel is not real, that what they're struggling with is invalid simply because you have found something else. True wisdom that sows peace will seek connection with another human being and with their feelings and their fears. This is not a contest. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's a loaded sentence. It's not just a call to carry other people's burdens, it's certainly that, but it's saying, in doing so you fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Love your neighbor as yourself. The ability to be considerate to actually stop and place yourself in another's shoes and feel and their fears and share their pain and fear, it has incredible potential in the world right now. I received a phone call last week from someone I haven't spoken to in over a decade. He was one of my first youth kids. He came to youth group at our church for a couple of years and then we mostly lost touch. Five or six years ago, we connected through social media, but we didn't speak. We just added each other on Facebook, and that was that. And then I received, out of the blue, a message from him. Are you free for a phone call? I said, of course, we'll you, what's up? So he called me here at the office, and we had an hour and 50-minute conversation. He hasn't been to church since. He's lost touch with church and God, but he's going through some very difficult times in his marriage. He said, I wanted to reach out to you because you're the only person I can think of who ever cared what I thought. The only person that I know in a position to be able to speak to this who ever cared about my fears. We didn't try and explain it away. 
I had absolutely nothing to offer him. Matt and I have, like I say, haven't spoken in 10 years. I've never met his wife. I can't exactly do counseling in that regard. But at the end of the conversation, he had some hope because someone cared about his thoughts and his feelings. The ability to identify with another person in this regard can change the world. But we have to be able to place others above ourselves. We have to worry less about being right and more about accepting the position they're in and working with them and sharing pain. Oh, I'm running out of time here, so we'll keep moving. The fourth thing that James says, if we're truly open, we will remain open to reason. In the translation we're using the NLT, it says, real wisdom is willing to yield to others. Other translations will use submissive or open to reason or something like that. And there's a reason that this differs so much from translation to translation. And that is because the Greek word that is used here in James is found exactly nowhere else in the Bible. It is used one time right here. So there is no other context for us. Fun fact, it's used almost nowhere else in other Greek writing of the era either. This word is an aberration. There are legitimately scholars who think that, the, that James made this word up, or that at some point it was mistranslated into Greek. But the point remains. Take your translation, you can choose. Submissive, open to reason, willing to yield to others. The point is, you're placing others above yourself. The point is, you're going to listen to them. Notice that James doesn't say, get your facts straight and present them in a lawyerly argument the way he's doing to us. He says, no, you're going to listen to their reasoning. You're not only going to listen to it, you're willing to yield to it. You're willing to be submissive to it. It means that you're just a reasonable person. It means you're open to discussion, an actual conversation, not an argument, an actual back-and-forth dialogue. Imagine that. It means you're a wise person who can learn from anybody. The first pastor I ever worked for when I was a young youth pastor had on his computer, taped at the bottom, something, and it said, you are not smarter than anyone you will meet today. And it's because he needed a daily reminder that everyone you come across every day knows something we don't. And we need to listen. Again, we turn to Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 15. A fool thinks he needs no advice, but a wise man listens to others. We're being foolish when we're being stubborn. We're being foolish when we're being close-minded and close to reason. The truth is that being reasonable actually leads to change. It leads to peacemaking. We tend to not want to bother with facts as long as we can win. But in this case, the inconvenient truth is the important one. We cannot sow peace when we have a wall put up to others' opinions and thoughts. If we're truly wise, we remain open to new information. And the final thing, the final seed that James talks about for sowing peace would sum up like this. If we are truly wise, we will not condemn others. We will not bind them in their wrongs. Dennis Thiessen, a few Sundays ago, preached an incredible sermon on forgiveness. And that's what this basically boils down to. How many times have we entered a conversation? How many times have we gone in somewhere and said, I know how this conversation is going to play out? 
because I've seen, I've, I've had this exact conversation with this person a hundred times, so here's how it's going to go. Teenagers talk about this all the time. Again, falling back to my youth pastor days. Teenagers would often confide to me that they would try and make changes in their life. And they would resolve to do something. But the hardest thing is the inertia that comes from the expectations of those around them, expecting them to continue operating the way they have. It's less about motivation on our part. It's more about everyone has gotten used to us acting a certain way, so that's how we continue to act. <laughs> the true wisdom means looking at other people and giving them a fresh start constantly. It means saying, you know what, yeah, this conversation has gone this way 99 times, but maybe this will be the one where it doesn't. James says that it is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds that shows no favoritism and is always sincere. You see, the Bible says that mercy is the mark of wisdom. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit as being evidence of faith. James says mercy is that in action. Wisdom begets mercy. And mercy is giving people what they need, not what we think they deserve. When somebody stumbles, you don't judge them, you encourage them. Failing to do so separates friends. And then this will happen over time. When it happens over and over, we become unforgiving hard people. We expect it of one another. So we all fill in, we all fall into that trap. People find no reason, no hope for peace as a result. But true wisdom won't condemn others. We can condemn the evil that may be part of a particular action, but we cannot condemn the person. If Jesus himself could come to condemn action, but not people, surely we can do the same. Surely we can live the same way and say people matter more. Peace comes through God's mercy. Only through his mercy can we have peace with God. He gave us that completely un by his own supernatural and because of his own motivation, we don't deserve it. He supernaturally gave it to us through Jesus. Again, if he can do that, surely we can forgive whatever things we have going on in this world and start fresh. Now, some of you may sense that challenge in yourself. I certainly do. Are we quick to point out that everything that's wrong with the world? Are we quick to point out what's wrong with everything in our house, or our home, or our work, or in our church? Do we jump on every mistake? Do we bring up the past? We can resist God's call for grace and mercy for ourselves. But then we won't be honest about our own faults. We won't be sincere. We won't be authentic or genuine. We become prejudiced by justifying our own faults as acceptable and emphasizing the faults of others. Again, the old expression, we judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intent. <clears throat> When you're free of prejudice, when you're honest with others, open and honest about your own faults, it makes other people more open to you. And it is essential for social peace. So how do we do that? Romans 15, 7. Accept each other then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Accepting others as Christ accepted us. That is the core of true wisdom. You see, ultimately, apart from God, we will operate by the wisdom of the world that James, remember, so 
bluntly tells us is no good. True wisdom comes from above. True wisdom flows from Jesus coming for a sinful world in which every life has declared itself to be independent. The vital truth is that peacemakers don't see a war of sides as much as a field of sinners of which they are part. We will sow the seeds of peace when we begin with mercy. When we accept others as Christ has accepted us, the peace that the world needs, that the world needs to begin seeing is the peace that we have all found and sometimes forget. The peace that God offers so freely. A reconciled world with Him. We may have different political priorities. We may actually disagree about things that really truly do matter. We may fear different directions for uh, our country or our church to go, but we cannot place those ideas, ideas and thoughts above people. Going back to Abraham Lincoln, when the war was finished and he was so distraught by what it had taken, it took him years, it took him years, and shortly before he was assassinated, he finally told somebody in a, in a letter that he finally had peace about what had happened. He said, peace may have been declared long ago in the civil war of this country, but we have a long way to go in making a peaceful nation, but I have peace that we are finally on the right track. You see, Lincoln and so many others in that moment became peacemakers. It is a long, arduous, incredibly discouraging process. But they entered conflict intentionally. Silence, avoiding conflict, would have only led to more strife. Nothing would have been solved. The United States is still grappling with this years later. But it is a process. Peacemaking is constant. Keeping peace might be a little easier, we gotta get there first. And the absence of, of strife is not the same as peacemaking. I can't think of a time, a better time to choose to be a person who embraces the call to be a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker who enters into other people's pain and says, how can we fix this? Whether, whether that pain is caused by us or not. There is a very good chance that this week you will run into somebody, have an exchange with somebody who's different than you, someone who thinks differently than you, maybe even about things that really do matter. We're not talking about inconsequential things here. You have a chance in that moment to sow peace. You have a chance in that moment to change a life, yours and theirs. Don't try to solve things. If someone is hurting, just listen and learn and love. And maybe 10 years down the road, you get a phone call from someone saying, I remember this. Let's pray together. God, we want to be stopped, shaped, be stopped and shaped by the false wisdom of this world. We want to develop our lives according to the true wisdom that comes from you. We want to be peacemakers. We want to sow peace in our relationships. 
We want to acknowledge that we're sinners amidst a field of sinners, that nothing makes us fundamentally better than anyone else. We want to accept your mercy that you offer in Christ. We receive the death and resurrection of Christ as a price for our own sin. And we want others to be able to know this power and this peace that you provide. People to live in resurrected lives of peace. We ask now that you come and help us on this journey. As we look to you, we ask that you constantly remind us to be sowers of peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so now go. May Almighty God bless you with his mercy and make you always aware of his saving wisdom. May he strengthen you in faith with proofs of his love so that you will persevere in good works. May he direct your steps to himself and show you how to walk in charity and peace.